Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, the podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Bennington, and I'm stoked to welcome on the show this week's guest, Chris Cobalt, an Academy Award winner and legendary special effects supervisor whose credits include Star Wars The Force Awakens, The Dark Knight, and every James Bond film over the last 40 years. Chris is the man responsible for creating some of the most iconic set pieces in recent film history. He's the one who created the Batmobile for Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy, invented one of the largest rotating rigs for the gravity-bending hallways in 2010's Inception, and is responsible for designing and building the coolest car gadgets on your favorite Bond movies. Chris has found a way to merge imagination and engineering to create larger-than-life action. In our conversation, we discuss a number of topics, from his creative collaboration with Christopher Nolan and memories from shooting scenes in The Dark Knight, like the hospital explosion with Heath Ledger, the impossible task of rigging a full-scale subway train and crash it through the roof of the 007 stage at Pinewood Studios for Skyfall, a tease of his work on the upcoming No Time to Die, and much more. You can find past episodes from Soundstage Access wherever you get your podcasts. But now, without further ado, let's go to our conversation. Thank you, Chris, for joining us on the show. It's really, really a pleasure. You know, just to get listeners familiar with the role of a special effects supervisor, you know, not to be confused with a visual effects supervisor, if you had to explain your job to your Nana, how would you put it? (laughs) Um, Special effects covers a wide variety of, of things, really. We do all the atmospheric effects, so wind, rain, snow, fog, all those sort of things. And then you go into the more mechanical things, which are big rigs like the sinking house in Casino Royale, like the tube train crashing in Skyfall. Obviously, explosions are a key thing of what we do. And then I personally do a lot of vehicle stuff, you know, with um, putting gadgets on cars, uh, doing stunt work to keep stunt people safe when they're doing crashes and and things like that. It has a really wide range of um, topics that we deal with. Let me take things from the beginning and then your experience starting out in the business and the apprenticeship program early on in your career. It's my understanding that after Tommy, your first large movie experience was The Spy Who Loved Me in 77. And it amazes me to hear that you're 19 at the time. About it, you had this to say, quote, my early career was one big learning curve and all that provided knowledge put me in a good starting point. I learned the tricks for producing various atmospherics and later on moved out into the pyrotechnic side of things. After 10 years or so, when you've worked with enough people to figure out the right and wrong way to do things, you feel safe to start building on those established techniques. Close quote. So I was wondering, in what ways did legends like Derek Meddings and John Evans, how were they mentoring you? And what did that teach you about when you take on new assistants and mentor them? The very first place that I started to learn anything was a company called Effects Associates, where I was put with a very talented guy called Ken Morris, who was a research and development engineer. So 
The first thing I actually really learned was engineering. And I spent four years learning, being mentored by this guy. You know, he would build one on a lathe and I would build the other one, you know, if there were two of the items. So I was learning how to weld, how to use a lathe, how to use a mill. I mean, that was my first thing. And while I was with him, um, I was coming across people like Derek Meddings, John Evans, John Richardson. You know, they, they were the big iconic figures at the time. And, you know, often... I would go and work with them for two or three weeks. You know, Light Spy loved me. I went up and worked with um, John Evans on the set of the brand new 007 stage while I was still with this company. There are a lot of projects we could begin talking about, and I'm definitely going to be asking you about Bond. But allow me to begin with your experience with Christopher Nolan working specifically on The Dark Knight in, in 2007. Because I think there are a lot of fantastic set pieces that provided different challenges that you had to overcome. The first one I want to ask you about, obviously, was the hospital explosion with the Joker. And you do an amazing job of creating what feels like out of control danger. And yet at the same time, there must have been a lot of pressure to try and keep every performer safe. About that explosion, you had this to say, quote, I had always wanted to blow up a building and Chris Nolan offered me that luxury. We had a very narrow window in which to shoot it with an industrial railway line 200 yards behind the hospital and in no circumstances were they going to stop their trains. This time, we couldn't wait for the ideal shooting conditions. Close quote. So to what extent can one rehearse a building explosion? And, and I was wondering with Heath Ledger's wonderful performance, what do you remember about shooting that on the day? Well, obviously you can't rehearse the explosion itself for obvious reasons. But what you can rehearse is Heath Ledger coming out of the hospital, the timings of the cameras. You know, we had a, a camera on a, on a mobile vehicle that was pulling back with him and then going out with the bus as it went out. So all of that you can rehearse. But then when we pressed the button, we only had a two-hour window. That's all we had, two hours. So we were rehearsing before that two hours came up. And then when we got to that two-hour mark, it was right, stopwatches on and we had to get it within that two hours and literally the fireman was still putting out the fire from that shot uh, as the train passed in the background so we 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 got it but it was um a little bit stressful <laughs> i mean it's my understanding too that you guys are layering the explosion as you go because there are sparks as he's coming out then the detonator in the movie doesn't seem to be working you have an explosion far in the background and once he hops on the bus and drives away everything ends up collapsing and, it, it, and again you guys were pre-cutting the building to make sure you were shaping and molding the explosion right Yes, I mean, I consciously split the explosion into two parts. And you'll notice that when Heath Ledger is coming out, there's sort of fairly, you know, there's explosions going off, but they're what I call cosmetic explosions. There's no hard debris coming off them. There's nothing that's going to hurt anybody. They're, they're visual explosions. If you remember, Heath stops and the explosion stops and he, he thinks that his control's gone wrong. So he starts fiddling about with it and then he, he presses a button and that's when the, he, the real first real explosion started, which was a great big walkway in the background which went off. That was his cue to get straight in the back of the bus. Now, the bus was built like a, a fortress. It was lined with steel. The windows were lined with bulletproof glass and, and laminates. Once inside there, he was totally safe from any debris that came out. And then when he did get inside, that, that's when the real demolition started. That's when concrete was being blown uh, you know, by high explosives. So um, it was a, con a real conscious thing to split that into two parts, one which was totally safe and the other part where he had to be inside the bus to be safe. 
Who is this? I had a vision of a world without Batman. The mob ground out a little profit, and the police tried to shut them down one block at a time. And it was so boring. I've had a change of heart. I don't want Mr. Reese spoiling everything, but why should I have all the fun? Let's give someone else a chance. If Coleman Reese isn't dead in 60 minutes, then I blow up a hospital. A little later on in the movie, you have the flipping of the 18-wheeler on LaSalle Street in Chicago. And it's my understanding that you and Chris Nolan were really going back and forth in regards to this. And I'll ask you in a moment about the process of, of how important rehearsal is and understanding what is doable and undoable. In regards to that, you had this to say, Quote, I kept putting it off and asking Chris to compromise on the idea. Maybe we could flip the trailer unit over the cab. Maybe we could use a shorter truck to make the stunt more achievable. But he wasn't going to let the idea go. We tested with the biggest air piston I've ever seen in the back of the truck and blow me, the whole thing actually flew over and deviated off course by no more than six inches. Close quote. So the stunt was covered with seven different angles and you have four IMAX cameras. I was wondering, much like the hospital, how do you you take your shooting day and try and, and structure that rehearsal and shooting time did you guys have a backup by any chance no i always wait until the very last moment because sometimes on films you spend a lot of time dreaming losing sleep about a certain gags that you're going to do and then they get written out so i always leave it till the last possible moment when i know it's going to be in and that moment came with chris that i knew i had to do something you know after trying to get him to compromise on on the size of trucks and what it did. And um, I just said to him, look, I'm going to go down. I'm going to try it. If I think it's going to work, if we're in with a chance, we'll go for it. But if not, then the, the backup is we either do it as a miniature or last case, we do it as a CG, but probably would have been a miniature. So that would have been the backup, I think, doing it as a miniature. Well, then let me ask you about this, because I think your career is sprinkled with incredible examples of miniatures. You know, I'm thinking about the underground chase in the Dark Knight with the tumbler crashing into the garbage truck. We have the helicopter attack in Skyfall. We have the collapsing building in Casino Royale. And it's my understanding that true cinema comes together when you're mixing a variety of techniques. So why do you think it's important to return to miniatures and, and why do they seem to work time and time again? You know, I think one of the main reasons that we're still using miniatures is because you're, you're still doing it in camera. You know, it's as close to doing it full size. And bearing in mind that some of these miniatures are a third scale, so they're pretty huge. They're not tiny little miniatures, they're, they're massive. So, you know, doing a miniature is as close as you're ever going to get to doing it in camera full size. It's my understanding that you have a library of rehearsal footage that sometimes you go back to. And we have seen these behind the scenes tests of you guys, you know, in parking lots, rehearsing with the flipping truck, rehearsing with the bat pod. And I truly begin to understand now for filmmakers how important rehearsing something is to test the limits of what's safe or undoable. About it, you had this to say, quote, 75% of our job is testing, not only to make sure it will come off safely, but also to get the right look. The biggest blast sometimes looks more colorful was shot in overcast weather. Every rig and explosion is tested and films sometimes many, many times. So how much time do you usually allow for rehearsal to inform and change the way you're approaching a gag? And again, why is it so important to ever get to the point of understanding we can or cannot do it? 
Testing and rehearsing is crucial on many, many levels. You get a product that the director is totally happy with and he knows he's going to come on the set uh, and he has a 95% idea of what he's going to get because there's nothing worse than you, if you haven't rehearsed something, you come on, you do it, and the director says, well, that's not what I wanted. Where During the rehearsal period, he has the ability to tweak it, change little bits of it, make it bigger, make it smaller. You know, so that's that's one big bit. Obviously, the safety element, you know, testing. You don't just go onto a set with 400 people and just cross your fingers and hope it all it's all safe and all works. You have to find these parameters. You know, where are people going to be safe? It is so crucial. And, and, and my mantra is that, you know, I, I always want to get everything in one shot. You know, because that's big money when you've got four, five, six hundred people on a film set waiting around for us to rig a take two. So, you know, hopefully you do all those take twos, threes, fours and fives during the rehearsal period. So when you come to film it for real, you do it, do it once and, and well. Listeners should know that you won an Oscar for your work on Inception. And if anyone wants to hear more about the rotating hallway rig you created for the movie, I invite everyone to go back and listen to our guy Hendrix Dias episode. It was amazing that Guy was telling me when it came to the snowy fortress and Inception, how he had frozen the set into the mountain. And it, it just sparked the idea of, number one, how big, you know, Chris Nolan's imagination is in regards to not settling for a plan B. Well, we had... Um... We had quite big issues with shooting um, that scene because up until a week before, th there was no snow there. So we spent quite a lot of money making snow and shipping snow in. And we were all getting very, very nervous that we were going to struggle to get the shot. And then like three days before we actually got there, they had the biggest dump of snow you've ever seen. And then they had to get vehicles in to get rid of the snow so it was quite ironic you know the the big fortress on the top of the hill you know we knew we were going to have a shootout there and there was going to be various explosions but it was always going to be a miniature when it finally was destroyed but um i said to chris at the time well you know if we've got half a day why don't we have a go at blowing it up for real so we laced up all the supports underneath it all made out of wood with dynamite and cutting charges and uh, we had a go at it well, to be honest it wasn't that successful because we only had a couple of days to try and rig it um if we had pulled it off it would have been great because the whole lot would have slid down the hill but it, we knew we were going to do it as a miniature anyhow so, so it wasn't the end of the world but I, I like doing that if you know if you've got a set and you you know it's going to be pulled down afterwards then you might as well try and blow it up and get get it on film i think it's the right spirit <laughs> Listen, allow me to ask you about your relationship with Christopher Nolan because it fascinates me the way you two collaborate, often in regards to inventing new technology to suit the emotion and needs of a story. You know, I'm thinking of the Bat Pod and how creativity and imagination then have to translate into technical choices. About Nolan, you had this to say, quote, Chris is the great extractor. He squeezes every creative element out of everyone who's around him. Close quote. So in what ways do you think Chris Nolan brings the best out of you as a special effects supervisor? Well, there, there is no other person like Chris. That quote is so true. He, he squeezes every juice of creativity out of you. And I remember when I first met Chris, I went up and we had a chat. And Chris is a big Bond fan. And I think that's probably why I got the job in the first place. But we chatted for a while and we got on well. And he said, right, come next door and have a look at this. And uh, he took me into the next room and um, pulled a little cover off. And there was a little 12-inch long model of the Batmobile. And he said, do you think you can make that? I said, 
I'll have a really good try. I've got a great team around me. I've got some great vehicle guys. And um, what we actually ended up producing was more or less identical to that little tiny plastic model that he showed me on that first day. And the same with the bat pod as well. You know, the, the bat pod was a very, very strange creation. And um, I don't think Chris or Nathan Crowley, who designed it, had ever ridden a motorbike because if, if they had have done, they wouldn't have designed that the bat pod. It was um, very unorthodox. And we, and we spent a lot of time trying to get it working. Really enough, one of my main concerns, I've voiced it to Chris was that there was no mud guards on it and obviously as we know Batman has a cloak and I said look Chris you know when we get this going I'm really worried that this cloak is just going to get wrapped around the wheel so I said yeah I can see I can see your concern there so you know we came we started dreaming up ideas of when it gets on it does the cloak suck into a backpack and things like that one we finally got the bat pod going and then we had a working prototype and I said to Chris right Chris I'm going to go down I'm going to try the stunt guy with a with a cloak on the back and, and see how we get on with this cloak to see if we have got to dream up something and we went down and we put the stunt guy on it and we put uh, little breakaway tethers on it so if it did get wrapped up it wouldn't drag stunt guy off it would just wrap around the wheel and stop and um, we um, got it on a long straight bit and I said right three two one action and the stunt guy pulled away and as soon as the wind got under the cloak it lifted it straight up in the air and it never even looked like it was going to get near the wheel and we never had a problem with it throughout the whole film so it's funny how you try and think of all the things that can go wrong and then some of them just don't never happen. You mentioned a moment ago how perhaps your experience on the Bond films was what landed you the work in Inception and Guy Dias and Chris himself talked extensively about how movies like On Her Majesty's Secret Service influenced the idea of Inception as, as, as a spy movie. And I wonder if you feel like in your dialogue with, with Chris that ever influenced your choices in regards to the special effects. You started as early as 77 working on the Bond films. Were you guys ever studying Bond films and the way they would use rigs or explosions and actions and allowed that to inform the work you did together nearly 20 years later? Yeah, we, we there was a, a couple of times. I remember when we were going to do in um, Dark Knight Rises with the, the plane picking up the, the other plane and um, Chris asked me in one day and said, Look, have a look at these two clips. And one of them was, uh, funny enough, they were both bomb clips. One of them was from Moonraker where they did something like 50 jumps and you could quite clearly see that it was a stunt guys that were doing the jump. And then there was another shot from, I think it was Quantum of Solace, where we had Bond against green screen and in a wind tunnel. They said, which one do you think looks best? And, you know, the one in the wind tunnels with Daniel. But you had to say that the, the one that looked best was actually the real footage of the stunt guys. Even though you could see that they were stunt guys, it still had so much more tension that they were actually doing it for real rather than cheating it. So, yeah, we, we often had conversations about Bond and what how we'd done things and what he thought they were going that different he knows them inside out since we're talking about bond allow me to transition into you know the final portion of our conversation talking about the bond series and again we mentioned you started from my understanding in 77 with you know the spy who loved me and i'm so glad you're still leading the troops today with you know no time to die coming out you know we talked about explosions and everything but i think it's important to acknowledge how mechanical engineering and electrical engineering are a crucial part of your job because it's my understanding that you wanted 
to be a scientist when you were a kid. And again, these things feed into having to design something that eventually becomes story and emotion. About it, you had this to say, quote, I love the whole process of working with my team to research, develop, fabricate, test, and film the mechanical rigs, especially big ones. So again, rigs like the Casino Royale sinking house and the underground train in Skyfall, which I'll ask you about, are classic examples. So how do you try and blend math, science, and engineering and translate them into creative tools and that then become these these sequences? How important has engineering been in your life? Engineering has, has been absolutely huge. It's a passion of mine. Obviously, the, the explosions and all that are all part of the job, but my real passion is the engineering side of it. You know, as you mentioned, the, the sinking house, the underground subway train crashing through the ceiling. One of the greatest ones we did was actually the, we built this great big nine planet orrery in Tomb Raider, which was phenomenal. And you've said the quote, you know, it's the crew that I have around me are extraordinary. You know, sometimes they bring tears to my eyes where, you know, they've worked and worked and worked and worked to, to cure problems. And the engineering side of it is, is the one where, you, you know, you might have problems. It's, you know, is the hydraulic ram big enough? Is it working right? Is Have we worked out the calculations of what size ram to use? You know, have we got the pivot in the right place? You know, the team of guys that I have around me are, are genius. You know, they make me look great, to be honest. You know, I come up with the ideas, what I want to do and pitching with it. And, you know, I remember with the subway train, I mean, Sam Mendes rung me when I was out in LA finishing off Dark Knight. And he said, Chris, I've got this um, chase in the underground of London. He's just, and he said, I just want one jaw-dropping moment. What do you think, what, what could that be? And I dreamt on it that night and came up the, the subway train and emailed him next morning and said, look, what do you think about this? And he said, yeah, absolutely love it, love it, love it. And we went with that. But then I got back to London uh, where my crew had already started on the film and I got all my chief engineers around and said, right, Tubeway train, let's talk about Tubeway train. And I said, Chris, what planet were you on when you dreamt that up? And I said, well, what do you mean? It's, it's, I said, well, just, we'll just get a couple of train carriages, disused ones they're not using anymore. They said, those train carriages are 55 ton each. Oh, okay. All right, well, we'll, we'll build our own. Okay. Well, Chris, do you know how long they are? I said, well, 40 feet, something like that. No, they're 60 feet each. So all of a sudden it started dawning on me how big a job this was going to be. But, you know, we all laugh about it now. We, you sit around and it's a bit of banter between me and the guys and uh, they got stuck in and they got it made, got it done and it worked absolutely amazingly. And I was actually, they green screened me in as the train driver. I don't know whether you knew that. I was going to ask, I, I was watching the clip and I paused it and I said, guys, no way it's him, but it was, I knew it. Well, I was doing, um, I did a lot of second unit directing on that because I was sort of very instigational in dreaming up the end sequence with a helicopter attack on the house. And then I previewed it. Sam said, well, look, you've got to shoot all the stuff without the actors. So one of the little jobs I was doing after I'd shot all that end sequence was, um, he said, right, can you go and shoot some green screen stuff with this to put into the tube train with this actor? So I went down and I, I shot him three or four times and you know, I was feeding it back to Sam. And he, he said, it's Chris. This is not working right. You know, you, you're going to have to do it. So I thought this was just uh, a bit of a wind up and was going to appear on some comedy reel or something. So the first couple I played absolutely silly. And then I thought, well, I better do one seriously just in case they do use it. And he did use it. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it was fun. It was fun. I won't miss next time, Mr. Silver. Not bad. Not bad, James, for a physical wreck. Why, thank you. You caught me. 
Now, here's your prize. The latest thing from my local toy store. It's called Radio. I do hope that wasn't for me. <laughs> but that is. You started working as a second unit director in the last few years, and I know it's definitely expanding the way you look at assembling films, not just in your own department, but all departments. So about the experience you have this to say, quote, I have found over the years that I've tended to work closer and closer with the director on the script ideas and action concepts. Consequently, I now have a yearning to direct myself, close quote. So what, what has this experience working as a second unit director taught you the most about yourself and again, the process of filmmaking in general? I'm passionate now about directing and I, I think that stems from going back to when I, I, I have a passion for editing as well. And on a couple of times I've edited the, the what we call the bake-off reel for the Oscars. There's, they have a bake-off where 10 films get through and you all show a reel. And on a couple of occasions, I've actually edited all the, the reels, a 10-minute reel. And I really got into editing. And um, I started seeing you know, how I thought a sequence should be shot. And it, it sort of transformed from there. It's, it's the editing and the directing. And I also love the interaction with being in charge of people and getting people working together as a team and also enjoying the process. You know, over, over the years, you know, some second units I've worked on, that sometimes they're not enjoyable just from various egos. And I made a very conscious effort of making sure everybody has fun because I firmly believe that you get a lot more from people if they're having fun rather than if they're being shouted at. Just to wrap up our, our section in regards to the tube station stunt you were mentioning from Skyfall. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about your relationship with the 007 stage, how that feeds into the overall scheme of the movie because you guys have to come in with Dennis Gassner, the production designer. You probably have to build, occupy the stage, which may or may not have to be taken down and then redressed for another sequence. How long do you occupy the 007 stage for a stunt like that? How much time do you actually have to rehearse it and, and prep it? And how did that stunt compare to other ones in the film? That was a big build. I mean, I, I can't remember the exact number of weeks we were building it, but it was certainly into the months. You know, you, you, we all get together. We dream up how we're going to do it. And then, we, you know, we do various step tests along the way to see weight loadings, how we're going to pull the um, tube train through, how we're going to stop it was, was, was one of the biggest things. We were pulling it in at 30 miles an hour and we had to stop it within, oh, I don't know, probably... 30 feet so we had four or five six different layers of stopping if one failed the next one kicked in and if that failed the next one kicked in you know we had to be sure that we stopped it and it didn't come out the other side of the stage time it takes to build these rigs depends on the complexity of them off the top of my head i would say probably that was a four-month build ready for shooting a lot of it would have been prefabbed in the workshop so it was an installation rather than you know building it from scratch on the stage most of it would have been built in the workshops I was trying to study why that emotionally works so well and why you chose to build it full scale as opposed to a miniature. But when you put vehicles and sets, you know, large vehicles compared to small performers, you get scale, which is something that I think has a, a, an instant emotional reaction in people. Did you guys ever talk about doing it as a miniature and what was building it that large giving you? 
We did have the conversation about it being a miniature, but there was, at one time, there was a quite a lengthy scene after it had crashed. So we would have had to dress the set in with a crash, two, you know, couple of crashed carriages in anyhow, and the, the set demolished. So I think the decision was made, well, we, if we're going to dress the set as if it's crashed, you know, after we've already shot in it non-crashed, then we might as well do the crash as well. And, you know, I'm passionate about doing stuff full-size anyhow, and I, you know, when, it, when the, the topic comes up, I moan and stamp my feet and shout, and I want to do it, I want to do it. And, you know, with my relationship with Bond, they, they're very accommodating. I'm, they, I'm a bit like the uh, spoiled child when it comes to getting my own way with them. But they, I think over the years, they, they've learned that most of the time it, it looks much, much better for doing it that way. Allow me to jump back in time a little bit. I wanted to ask you about the tank chase and GoldenEye and the concept of integrating special effects, explosions, breakaway walls into historic locations. And people rave about the fact that initially it started as a motorcycle chase idea and you pitched having a full-size tank chase. So how do you usually try and work off the strengths of an existing location? Yeah, when we first started work on it, the, the, obviously the first thing we had to do was find some tanks, which uh, surprisingly wasn't that difficult. I, I, I went out and I found, I think it was two or maybe three Russian T-54 tanks in England. We then dressed them up to look like a later model by adding dressing. Because we were going to go out to St. Petersburg, we also built a much, much lighter one. When, bear in mind, these things are 30 ton. We built a lighter one that looked, had dummy tracks on it but was actually had a small armored car underneath it so instead of being 30 ton it was probably five ton because we were worried that when we got to st petersburg if we started damaging the streets with the real tanks they might not like that very much so getting the tanks was one thing i mean dreaming up the sequence when once we decided we were going to use the tank it was amazing how many opportunities came about you know the, the things have the ability to go underwater with snorkels on and obviously we spent a lot of time testing running over vehicles going through real walls, you know, just to get a real feeling of what we were trying to match. And the walls that it went through were, were pretty substantial. One of my favourite shots is where the tank bursts through that wall and lands just behind the car it's pursuing. I thought, that was such an amazing shot. And split-second timing by the stunt crew, I, I, I take my hat off to them for that shot. That was an amazing shot. The tank actually started about a quarter of a mile back, so it had to get up to 30 miles an hour or something and hit a mark. And then there was a stopwatch. So we were on the on the one side of the wall and all you heard was this tank the other side of the wall going, getting faster, 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 faster. And then the car screamed round the corner and then this tank exploded through the wall. It was an extraordinary event, very exhilarating. Obviously, you work very closely with the sun department, but also the production design team. Does it fall on you guys to create these breakaway walls in regards to the math and the materials? Is that why you guys take care of it? It's a collaboration between us, uh, normally special effects and the construction departments. You know, the construction guys are uh, unsung heroes. You know, they don't get nearly enough credit for the work they do on a film. And I'll get together with construction manager. I mean, to be perfectly honest, when you've got a 30-ton tank hitting a wall at 30 miles an hour, it doesn't really have to be that breakaway because it's going to get through even if it was four foot thick. But we obviously want it, want it to look great. So it's a collaboration between us and construction and we'll have our own ideas. A construction manager might pitch some other ideas which are easier, cheaper, quicker to do a take two. You know, it's, a, it's the whole making film process is, is one big collaboration between many, many creative people. 
I would be remiss not to ask you a little bit about, you know, designing the technology of the 007 cars the same way Q as a character in the Bond series. I kind of think of you, Chris, as the Q of the movies behind the scenes. This is what you had to say about it. Quote, creative brainstorming takes us anywhere between four to eight months, depending on the film, close quote. And I'm obviously talking about the gadgets. You have a close relationship with picture vehicles, all kinds of vehicles, not just the Bond cars. And I can imagine this has evolved over the years. So how do you try, you know, from movie to movie to offer and design gadgets that feel both fresh and organic to the story, but also can be achieved on a technical level? That's getting more and more difficult because the nature of modern technology, it's not very visual, <laughs> if you know what, if that makes sense. So the, the sort of gadgets that look great are the old, the old fashioned ones where, you know, you've got mines dropping out the back, you've got guns coming out the front, you've got bombs, seats firing out the thing. They're old-fashioned, but they're the most visual and look great. And coming up with new ideas is pretty difficult these days. I mean, it will stem normally from where is the location? Is it snow? Is it sand? What can we come up with that would look different as a gadget in the snow or in the sand? You know, it's is it being chased or is it chasing? You know, they're all factors that come into what the vehicle does and um, it normally involves trying to rack your brain what can we do different what can we do different 007 i'm your new quartermaster you must be joking why because i'm not wearing a lab coat because you still have spots my complexion is hardly relevant and your competence is age is no guarantee of efficiency and youth is no guarantee of innovation well has it i can do more damage on my laptop sitting in my pajamas before my first cup of earl grey than you can do in a year in the field Oh, so why do you need me? Every now and then a trigger has to be pulled. Or not pulled. It's hard to know which in your pyjamas. Another thing I wanted to ask you about, it's been a pleasure to observe and recognize how there seems to be a legacy of stunt families and special effects families in the UK specifically. You know, I'm thinking about Vic Armstrong and Gary Powell and yourself. You know, you have your brothers, for example. I'll just offer you a quote. Quote, we're not actually competing. I don't think we've ever been pitching for the same movie. Close quote. I understand that it's not a competition, but I see the positive in it. I wonder why do you think in the UK specifically there's such a loyalty and dedication to carry on the tradition of a craft from one generation to another? Uh, that's a good question. And um, I mean, uh, you have that in the, in the States as well. A guy I worked with on um, came in, helped me out on Inception and Dark Knight, and then actually took over from me, Scott Fisher. His father, Tommy Fisher, was an Oscar winner on Titanic. So it's not, it's not unique to the UK. I think we've got quite a few families. But I think part of the, the advantage, if you like, is I think you're brought up on a film set. You know, as a child, you're taken onto film sets and um, it's in your blood. So it cuts out that a bit of a learning curve about the protocol about being on the stage and you, it's in your blood. So I think it pays dividends. We mentioned the hospital explosion in the dark night at the beginning of our conversation, but I wanted to ask you about your relationship with explosions in general, because I, I know it's a key part of your job. You guys set the record for the largest stunt explosion in a movie with Spectre. What has your relationship been with explosions and, and why do you think they operate on such like a primal and spectacular way when done for real? I think it's probably for the same reason people still go to firework displays. Uh, people like the loud noises. They like to be in awe of bright lights. And there's nothing brighter than a few tanks of gasoline going up. 
I think there's a lot of creativity to be found in this because you were saying how sometimes shooting in overcast weather makes explosions look better. Is how? What do you think that is? Obviously, in bright sunlight, it dilutes down the, the flames normally. So if it, the darker it is, the better. But we don't normally have the luxury of being able to determine the weather. So we have to do it no matter what. The one on uh, Spectre in the, in Morocco was was quite an interesting run because it started off as a as a big uh, visual effects cavern collapsing into the ground and um, Sam was not really on board with it and said, Chris, what can we do? And I said, well, look, I, I think I can do an explosion that you'd be happy with and then would be fitting for a bomb film, which is what we did. The one thing that I'm a bit annoyed about is that we had to destroy all the explosives that we didn't use after we did the shot and that was three times bigger than the shot. And I just wish I'd put that in the background of the shot that we did. But... Um, it was fun, you know. There was no windows to break out there in the middle of the desert, so it was it was it was a great little event. The last project I wanted to ask you about was No Time to Die, which recently wrapped. I want to keep things free of spoilers because I am not interested in talking about story. I think it's important for audiences to see the movie fresh. But what has been discussed, there's incredible footage of you guys shooting in Matera, which is in the south of of Italy. Again, throughout this conversation, we've talked about how yourself, you are an action vehicle supervisor now, you are a second unit supervisor as well, and you're just bringing on more and more creativity and ideas to, to these films. In regards to designing action sequences and talking about Matera, which is such an old and beautiful city, very, very historic. How did shooting these sequences evolve from the way you thought you were going to approach them to the challenges and the way they ultimately ended up being? Well, the, the Matera sequence was was an interesting sequence because, uh, as you quite rightly said, it's a, you know it's a really historic town dates back 100,000 years or, or more. And, um, you know, I was nervous when we first went there because there's, there's only really one main road through it. And for us to shoot there for best part of five weeks in total with second unit and first unit, it meant shutting down the road. So it was a, it was a, lot, a big problem for the, local, for the local town, but they totally embraced it. And um, that whole sequence evolved, 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 evolved. You know, we thought we got it and then the director would tweak it, change it a bit. I mean, I, I ended up going out there 12 times with Lee Morrison, the, the stunt coordinator, coming back with a slightly different version, slightly different version. But it was when we actually came to shoot it, it just went like clockwork. And the, and the amazing thing was that, you know, Matera, it's built into a hillside. So it's almost like a natural amphitheatre. So when we were driving the cars around and they were screeching around corners and cars flipping over and that, every time we did a shot, there was this massive round of applause from all the way up the hill where the people were watching from rooftops, balconies, steps. It was quite exhilarating, actually. I saw there was smoke and fire in the sequence. When you're approaching a location that is very fragile, shall we say, have you found techniques to create danger and out-of-control spectacle when really you're using materials or methods that are safe and respectful for the location? We always want to be totally respectful to anywhere we go. You know, that we're only there for a fleeting moment and I'd hate to think that we'd ever ruined anything for the people that have to live there and work there. So everything we do is geared up around protecting the buildings, building stuff on to make sure that, you know, if a car flips, it's not hitting a real building. A lot of money is spent protecting, you know, the history and, and the integrity of, the, of these places. James Bond. 
License to kill. History of violence. I could be speaking to my own reflection. Only your skills die with your body. Mine will survive long after I'm gone. History isn't kind to men who play God. My last question to you regards the legacy of your work and the variety and amount of projects you have carried on. So what do you think has kept you so busy over the last 45 years in the business? And what is a conversation like with yourself in regards to the great work you have produced and the great work you're still looking to produce? I'm very blessed to have 45 great years. I've worked with some great guys who taught me the ropes and hopefully you know, the, their legacy has carried on to me. With a bit of luck, my legacy will carry on with the, to the guys that have worked with me over the years. You know, that, that's the uh, thing that I'm looking for. But, you know, I, I love script writing. I love the directing side of it. I would still like to be creatively involved with the special effects and I'd like to have the... Even if I am directing, I'd like to have the team that have been me for the last 20 years right by my side doing all the special effects. That would be my aim, really, to direct, write, and have the guys around me who have been with me for so long. Chris, you have been so incredibly generous with your time and your knowledge. It truly is such a pleasure. You have no idea how big of a fan I am. So thank you for joining us on the show. It's, it's been fantastic. It's my pleasure, my pleasure. Great to talk to you, bye-bye. And there you have it, folks. I would like to thank Mr. Cobalt for taking the time to call in from the UK. And to Eric Boss, who's doing an amazing job mixing all of these episodes. Please help us by taking a moment to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Rate and leave a review so you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Stay tuned in the coming weeks for new conversations with Fast and Furious stunt coordinator Jack Gill and the La La Land production design team. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access. <laughs>